Let me invite you to turn now to your Bibles. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 3 and from verse 27 to verse 31. Romans chapter 3 and verse 27 to verse 31. And as you find that place in your Bibles, you'll find our pew Bibles in front of you or under the seat. Um, uh, let me invite you to stand and uh, we'll read the Bible passage together. And as we stand, let us pray. Our Lord, uh, I ask that you would show us the power of faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's hear God's word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do please sit down. When you meet the unbelievers, strike the neck. That quotation is being taken literally by some people in Iraq as they seek to uphold their law. At the same time, there are others today who are resisting all calls to morally lawful behavior, sometimes to great popular acclaim on reality TV shows, like the Kardashians. Kim Kardashian was interviewed by the Guardian newspaper about her talent. She replied, Well, a bear can juggle and stand on a ball, and he's talented, but he's not famous. You know what I mean? Famous for being famous. It's all over our screens these days, isn't it? It's an interesting psychological phenomenon. In fact, Gene Twenge and Keith Campbell, two psychologists, have commentated on this phenomenon. They say this, it is a showcase of narcissism, making materialistic, vain, and antisocial behavior seem normal. And then, on the other side of the world, they are cutting off people's heads to uphold their law.
Our global society is on the tip of a knife. Crude, crass narcissism or violent, aggressive religionism. But it's not just out there, is it? It is estimated that the average American spends five hours a day watching TV, not to mention other screen time from other devices. And so our inner world is constantly being impressed by this choice. We either are drawn towards the Hollywood lifestyle or perhaps to rebelling against the system, even to opposing the unbelievers, perhaps with violence. The way out is to think different and therefore live different about faith. And the key is to realize that faith must be faith alone, like a pure glass of water, unsullied by any drop of ink. Crystal pure. Faith alone. And see, Paul here is actually going to show us what only faith can do in three ways. First, only faith can take boasters and make them proclaimers. This is verses 27 to 28. Look down with me, if you will. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is all Paul's way of saying that uh, only faith can take boasters and make them proclaimers by celebration, clarity, and proclamation. Celebration. The same word you see, boast, is used in chapter 5 at the beginning where Paul says we rejoice or we boast in hope of the glory of God. So Paul is saying here that only faith can remove boasting and replace it with celebration. No longer boasting over other people, no longer puffed up with pride because we're better than other people. Now all celebrating joyfully in the future we have together in God. Only faith can do that, he is saying. Celebration. Clarity. Well, to be justified by faith, apart from works of the law, is Paul's way of emphasizing that it's only faith. So he's defining faith by the clarity of its object, by the absence of anything but God in whom we have faith. Faith is living in the face of God. Faith, F-A-I-T-H, for all I trust Him. Only faith, because only God, only He can do it. Uh, Martin Luther, you may know, was much criticized for adding the word alone into this sentence in his uh, German translation of the Bible. On September the 15th, 1530, Luther wrote a letter replying to these criticisms, which, as is typical for Luther, is worth reading if only purely for the entertainment value. <laughs> he makes two points. 
First, Luther says, well, he is translating into German. He does not amend the Latin text because that is a different language. But in German, this needs to sound like what a German would say. And so he gives other examples of how he translates the Bible to sound like what a German would say. For instance, the well-known text, Hail Mary, full of grace, uh, Luther says he wishes that he could translate as, Hello there, Mary, you gracious one. His second point is, not only is this good German, it is actually the meaning of the text. By excluding all the works of the law, Paul means only faith, that's all that's left. He says this is exactly what the Holy Fathers had said from Augustine and Ambrose. He's teaching the same thing as the early church had said. Clarity. Only faith. Celebration. Only faith can do that. Proclamation. This word uh, boast comes again and again in Romans. It's one of these threads that goes throughout the book of Romans, and it's finally transformed into a sort of trumpet a proclamation right towards the end. Chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. He's talking about his ministry of proclamation throughout all the nations. I glory or I boast. This boaster has become a proclaimer. Only faith can do that. I love the speeches of JFK. He was a brilliant orator. But uh, there's one well-known occasion where he made a bit of a gaffe, a mistake. He was speaking in Germany, uh, in the city of Berlin. Of course, he was uh, being translated, and there was a mass crowd of people. JFK was very, very popular at the time he decided to try some German. And so he said, Ich bin ein Berliner, thinking thereby he was saying that uh, I'm from the city of Berlin. I'm one of you. But there was a sort of embarrassed pause as he said it. There's a YouTube clip you can see. It's really quite fascinating. All the Germans sort of look at each other like this. And then the translator steps in and explains what the president had meant. And JFK looks slightly surprised and a bit embarrassed, and then wonderfully recovers by saying, I thank my translator for translating my German. It is possible that what happened was this. At the time, a certain form of donut was known as a Berliner. And so, by instead of saying it been Berliner, inserting the word ein beforehand, it is possible, though we don't know for sure, it's possible that what he was actually saying in the vernacular was not, I am a Berliner, I'm one of you, but instead, I am a jelly-filled donut. <laughs> well, whether or not that is the case, we do know that, as it's often said, pride comes before a fall. And so we look at a text like this as Worthy Christians coming to a church like God's church, and we want to get low and humble. And yet, is there no room for confidence in what we believe? Courage. We misunderstand humility so often. This is not the kind of thing, as uh, Churchill is said to have remarked about one of his opponents, that he was a humble man who had a lot to be humble about. 
Oh no, listen to Augustine. Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first the foundation of humility. So he's not saying don't plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Don't plan to rise. He says lay the foundation of humility. That tower can be built, but only by faith. You see, a boaster divides, a proclaimer invites. A boaster puffs up, a proclaimer reaches out. A boaster takes adulation, a proclaimer gives inspiration. A boaster thinks big, dreams big, talks big. A proclaimer has someone big to talk about. So we can have courage. We can clap. We can shout. We can proclaim. Only faith can take boasters and make them proclaimers. But also, second, only faith can take enemies and make them friends. Getting along with people was much easier said than done. Much easier for other people to have to do than for us to have to do. (laughs) Much easier in theory than in practice. I love the uh, Peanuts cartoon. One point, Linus says this, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. I had one friend who used to say to me that the more, the more he went fishing, the less he wanted to be with people. <laughs> Church would be great if it weren't for people. But church is people. Other people are people. We are people too. Some people are the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. Some people are the rain that you need for the rainbow. And for some people, we are those people to them. If getting along with people is easier said than done, it is normally thought to be impossible to do what Paul was doing in verses 28 to 20, 29 to 30, namely taking enemies and making them friends. Only faith can do that. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It's probably helpful to have a bit of historical background here. We have some certain facts that we know, and there are other pieces that I'm going to fill in that I think at least make credible sense, so there are probably some different ways of putting together the picture. The Emperor Claudius, before this, had expelled all the Jewish people from the city of Rome. We know this because uh, Priscilla and Quilla turned up in Corinth, having had to leave Rome, having been expelled by Claudius, along with all their other uh, Jewish uh, people, and helped Paul as he preached the gospel in Corinth. We know that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were arguing together. Why they were arguing, we're not sure. But it is quite likely that what was going on was many Jewish people were becoming Christians. And they were beginning to be persecuted by the 
non-Jewish, by the Jewish, uh, non-Christian Jews. And so Claudius said, I've had had it with all of you. You're out. (laughs) And then they came back. Of course, a little bit miffed at each other, I would think. And in the meantime, the church had continued to grow, this time by primarily reaching Gentiles, because that was all that was left. And so the Jewish Christians come back to find the church has been taken over by these Gentiles who they don't quite do church like we think it should be done. And they're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who persecuted them, who annoyed each other for having to leave. This is what is technically known as a difficult pastoral situation. I had uh, one uh, older colleague at one point, he'd been a senior pastor for many years, he was retired when he told me the story, and it was some years ago when he told me it, I'm not even sure whether he's still alive, maybe he's in glory, but anyway, he told me this story. One of the early churches that he had been asked to be the senior pastor of, when he arrived, he discovered that there were two long-term members of the church who were not on speaking terms. They literally did not speak to each other. They came to church, sat in different corners and avoid eye contact and did not speak to each other. What he did, what every wise senior pastor does in such situations to begin with, he ignored them. (laughs) And then he felt, well, he really needed to try and so he exhorted them separately, encouraged them to get along. This went on for years and years until finally he'd had enough. He decided, having tried everything that you read about in the books about such situations, that he would go at last to his final remedy, subterfuge. He asked each of them separately, without the other one knowing, to meet him on the platform of a train station. One came down from this side, the other came down from that side, noticed the senior pastor, smiled, noticed the other guy. And he said uh, to me that he said to them, neither of you are leaving until you have shaken hands and committed to get along. Apparently it worked. Paul is doing something similar here, though with a slightly different technique. Unlike what I find uh, a lot of Christians do, Paul has a slightly different approach. Paul does not seem to be trying to get the warring parties to um, navel gaze and examine precisely who is at blame and what was the sin that caused the rupture and all that. No, Paul has spent three and a half chapters saying everyone is at fault all the time. We are all sinners. You you don't have to examine your heart to figure out whether you're a sinner. You just have to read your Bible and believe it. But what only faith can do is take your eyes off each other and put them back on the vision of God. God is one. You have God in common, don't you? Justified. You are both justified the same way, aren't you? Don't assign blame. Focus on what you have in common. 
Only faith can do that. I uh, like to read uh, biographies of um, American presidents. It it helps me get up to speed, you know, having lived here for a while now. I, I do that on occasion when I have the time and have some free schedule to do some general reading. And I like to read such biographies. One biography I read was a very great biography of a very great American, George Washington. Many of you will know that one of the reasons why Washington was so trusted in the early days is he seemed to lack ambition. He, he, he was trusted because he didn't want to be the top dog, and so they let him lead the revolution, and then they, they let him become the first president. But even a man such as Washington had his enemies. It is inevitable, if you're a leader, that you will pick up some. The only way to avoid having all enemies is to avoid leading at all. And there was one man in particular who vilified Washington and accused him at length over many years. He wrote letters to Congress and kept on threatening to resign if his accusations were not addressed. Finally, Congress had had enough and they accepted his resignation. He kept on accusing Washington. At the end, one of uh, Washington's defenders, a man called John Cadwallader challenged this uh, enemy of Washington, Conway, to a duel. And Conway was killed. And the story is that after Cadwallader, the defender of Washington, had killed Conway, he stood over the bleeding enemy of George Washington and said, I have stopped the rascals lying anyway. Be careful who you oppose and for how long. Could it be that your refusal to just get along with your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister is actually an anger with a far greater leader than Washington? God is one, and in him we are to be one, one God, one faith. Only faith can look at an enemy and see in his eyes the light of Christ. Only faith can look at an enemy and see in his hands the marks of Christ. Only faith can look at an enemy and see in him himself who also needs Christ. You can make an enemy a friend when together you make a friend of God because in Him only faith ultimately matters. Taking enemies and making them friends, only faith can do that. Taking boasters and making them proclaimers, only faith can do that. Yeah, clap, shout, rejoice. But there's one more thing that Paul was saying only faith can do. More remarkable than even the previous two. Not only making boasters, proclaimers, not only making enemies into friends, but also, third, only faith can put into practice what we preach. 
Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. An ounce of practice is worth a ton of preaching, it is said. But a ton of practice will only happen by faith, the seed of faith and faith alone. Here Paul is counteracting what I call uh, the dentist with crooked teeth syndrome. Let me explain. There is a tendency for us humans to become experts as a way to avoid practicing what we preach. The guilt-ridden psychologist, the criminal policeman, the chain-smoking physician, the drunk preacher, the dentist with crooked teeth, the person who knows their Bible well in theory but does not practically uphold the law. We dull the pain of personal conviction by the passion of public convictions. Uh, The NFL has been struggling with this in recent weeks. One football star after another has been accused of domestic violence or equivalent, not upholding the law. But it's not simply an occasional blip on an otherwise serene spiritual heart monitor of American life, is it? Statistically, something like 30% or 50% even of Americans lay claim to the name of Christ. However you assess those statistics, it's certainly a large number. No doubt the cause of Christ has huge impact on America historically and currently. Just this week, I I was massively encouraged to hear two separate stories of Christ dramatically impacting people in our own town and in our own church. But when you hear at the same time that across America, one in five men admits to violence against their spouse, You know that we have some way to go before we are practicing what we preach. Dr. Vijay Singh, University of Michigan Medical School and author of that study from which I just quoted, said, it's likely that we've all met these men in our daily environment. This is an issue that cuts across all communities regardless of race, income, or any other demographics. What is the answer? How do we practice what we preach? Only faith can do that. Here we must disagree with Martin Luther, having agreed with him earlier. Luther famously said that James so differed from Paul that he called the letter of James that strawy epistle. But James is really saying exactly the same as Paul here. Paul believes that faith upholds the law, and James insists that faith without works 
is dead. It is the same idea said in different ways to different groups of people by uh, different authors, but it is the same thinking, the same message, the same idea. James is not a strawy epistle. James is a strawberry epistle. Sweet and luscious, going wonderfully well with the ice cream of Paul's letters to the Romans. An ounce of practice is worth a ton of preaching, it is said. But a ton of practice will not happen without the seed of faith and only faith. There were two girls waiting at a bus stop, their best of friends. One of them says to the other, I'm just not sure whether he loves me. Her friend says, well, why is that? She says, well, the other day he did um, buy me flowers. girl says, well, that's good. And yesterday when it was raining, he did come and pick me up in his 2001 Kia Optima. Well, that's good. And every time he sees me, he does say he loves me. Well, that's good. Why don't you think he loves you? Pause. I just want him to prove it. Faith takes God at his word. I have come to give you life and life to the full, Jesus says. I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, the Bible says. Surely the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a delightful inheritance, the Bible says. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, the Bible says. Well, the reason why we do not practice what we preach is because we do not believe what we preach. Faith takes God at His word. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, yeah, when faith upholds the law, it is sweet. For all I trust him. Faith is living in the face of God. And when you see that face, by faith, you see the crown of faith. Thorns, and the question is no longer, do I really have to do that again? The question is, 
Lord, what do you want me to do? C.S. Lewis put it like this about these pleasures forevermore. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Faith takes God at His word that His pleasures are better. Practicing what you preach. Only faith can do that. Taking enemies and making them friends, only faith can do that. Taking boasters and making them proclaimers, only faith can do that. We need to think different and therefore live different about faith. Imagine a church where the atmosphere is electric, where the warmth is palpable, where all were conscious they stood on holy ground. Each week, People found grace and hope and meaning and new life where the humble are exalted and the proud are set free to be who they were meant to be, where everybody is somebody and Jesus Christ is Lord. Imagine a church where the rivers of righteousness flow so bright and so blue that you practically have to wear dark glasses to be able to look on the brilliance of the glory of Christ. Imagine a church where the excitement of being there was such that we had to issue tickets to stop from overcrowding. Imagine a church where sins are forgiven, guilt is removed, where none judged each other, for Christ is the church. Where the broken are healed, where marriages are restored, where children's children worship together. There's nothing but praise and a thrill of glory from morning to dust where we had to send people home at the end of the day so they had enough sleep to be able to do their work the next morning. Imagine a church where boasters become proclaimers, where enemies become friends, where sinners become saints, that church can change the world, and it is what only faith can do. Let us pray.